0: Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Dr. Leslie Sherlin, who I'm going to introduce in just a minute, but first, he's going to tell us why we should tune into the show today.
1: Yeah, and that's such a tough question, quite honestly. I've been thinking about it um, for a little bit of trying to decide how do we be modest, but also be transparent and not knowing where the conversation is going to go. So I'm just going to jump in and say that... um, you know, the, the things that I hope that we, we dig into are how our brain states, specifically from an electrical standpoint, contribute to our overall experience and then what we individuals can do to modulate that to help create uh, the experience of life that we're, we're ultimately hoping for. So that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the, I think the value proposition here is learning how to uh, have insight into how we think, feel, and behave, and how to modulate that in some way. This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast, the Neurohacking Show, where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now, here's your host, Toby Passman.
0: All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. If you guys are a fan of the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate that. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for guests that you want to see on the show, feel free to shoot me a DM at Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro on Instagram. You could also email me Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast at gmail.com. To give you guys a bit more background, Dr. Sherlin is a licensed associate counselor and sport and performance psychology consultant to dozens of athletes, teams, and individuals. Dr. Sherlin has had an extensive career in providing patient services, academic research and instruction, and entrepreneurial endeavors in mental health care. He is one of the world's leading experts and a leader in the research and use of neuroscience for improving human performance. He's led research partnerships with Red Bull North America's High Performance Center, USA Track and Field, US military special operation forces, local and federal law enforcement agencies, Fortune 500 companies, and professional teams in multiple sports in many countries. He's published his work in the academic literature and has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, BBC, Sports Illustrated, CNN, ESPN. CVS, Popular Science, Outdoor Magazine, and more. So Dr. Sherlin, I could continue, but uh, welcome to the show.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Let's let's not continue. Let's have some real conversation.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So I'll just tell you as far as how I first got familiar with or first heard about your work was reading one of my favorite books of all time, honestly, The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. And there's uh, a variety of different um, I guess, pieces of of an interview that he's, he used in that book. How, how did you, uh, how did you, did he reach out to you to, uh, to interview you for that book? Or how did that collaboration kind of come about?
1: Yeah, actually, we met um, at an event that uh, Red Bull North America was hosting, and it was called Glimpses. And there was this uh, really great consortium of individuals, and it was really um, an elite group of you know, uh, movers and shakers, so to speak, in the field of performance, and um, and he happened to be at that conference, and then um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the presenters, so gave like a little brief, it was almost like in the TED kind of uh, style of, you know, quick, uh, quick talk, so we did that, and then we met afterwards, uh, somebody made an intro and hit it off, and then we just kind of started developing a relationship of exploring the things he was interested in particularly as it related to the brain component of performance and so yeah and so then as he started that work he said let's i want to pick your brain a little bit about some of these things and then we um, had some really good conversations interestingly um it's actually kind of ironic that one of the most prominent flow states that I've ever experienced while not doing something that's like in a sporting kind of world was actually in that phone call with Steven. It was really kind of a cool moment of like all of those kind of elements transcending time and getting into really deep, deep kinds of things. It was really fun. Um, So
0: yeah, that's kind of how it played out. Interesting. Interesting. So Mm -hmm. just a a cool connection and Produced the, the flow state with one of the guys on <laughs> right. experts in flow states, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Right on. So so let's back up a little bit and just kind of tell me, you know, how did you originally kind of just get into the field of psychology and, and your particular expertise? Like, how did that come about?
1: Yeah, it's um, to me, I started to say it's an interesting story, but it's an interesting story to me because none of it was planned that way. It wasn't that at any point in my history I said, oh, this is what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, in fact, um, I had originally began college and I'll kind of skip the, all the stuff that contributed before that. But as I was in college, I was studying music. And there was a thing that was interesting to me where I was really good, but I wasn't the absolute best. And I would work really hard and see some of my peers not work as hard, but they would excel beyond what I was doing. So there was always this um, kind of feeling of like, man, I have to work harder to get to the same place as somebody who's more, and at the time, I attributed to that they were just more talented. Um, they were better for whatever reason. And um, and it almost doesn't matter why they were better, but there was this difference, this thing that happens. Like if we look the same, you know, have similar backgrounds, uh, cultural implications, access, resources, et cetera, we should be pretty comparable, but that wasn't the case. And so I, I moved away from music um, for a variety of reasons and then started on this, different search of various majors and then finally somewhere around my eighth year of being an undergraduate my advisor said hey look you don't have to go away we just call it graduate school so pick something um, and I said I would I'd been interested in psychology from a lot of different angles but um said so let's let's give that a go let's try that and just by coincidence, I was, um, I happened to grow up in Tennessee and I had been given a, a music scholarship to go to the University of Tennessee. So that's where I stayed. And then in my senior, <laughs> my senior year, my actual senior year, the, um, I had a choice of senior capstone class. It was either idiot savants or biological basis of behavior. When I was really young, I thought about being a physician and so I thought, oh, let's do that biological basis of behavior and then uh, the professor was Joel Lubar who was actually a guest on one of your previous uh, shows. Yes. So that's just you know serendipity of landing in that class with him as the professor was you know, really a catalyst that, that was one of those you know forks in the road so to speak that changed the trajectory of what my life turned out to be. So I stuck around there um, stayed and worked in Dr. Lubar's laboratory for several years while pursuing degrees in clinical psych. And then, um, yeah, so it was just kind of a a real serendipitous moment. And then that, that has followed me, like that notion of going with what life gives to you rather than banging on the door that you want to get inside of, but instead going, well, I'm having a hard time opening this door. And you look slightly to your left and there's another door that's wide open. It's like, well, let me just walk through that one and see what happens. That really is the story of, of my career path. It was that. And then um, that being a student of uh, Dr. Lubar's really opened a lot of opportunities. There was some immediate uh, credibility that was established. And, and it was a good program. He's a great uh, professor and that the program was good. So then um, as I moved out into the world, was working in uh, a private practice for another individual working in electrophysiology, neurofeedback, quantitative EEG, both in research as well as clinical practice. That um, then opened some other opportunities and was out doing my own thing, predominantly doing research and analysis for other professionals. And um, happened to be again come in contact with a group of individuals who are in the entrepreneurial space and they wanted some domain expertise. In that. And then that then opened a, a door that then introduced me to some, uh, some really great people at Red Bull um, who then have people who were collaborating with Red Bull. Um, and then, most notable of those, another um, came good friend, and then an influencer, Michael Gervais, who is one of the preeminent sports psychologists in, um, in the in the world, really, Um, but especially uh, has a big hold here in the U.S. And so that then opened up the sports psych world. So then combining all these things. And then from there, it's just like a a whole domino effect of, you know, knowing people, meeting people and that opening new doors. So that's kind of how that it's a really um, fun to think about because none of that could have been planned that way. And if I had been on this really rigid planned path, I'm not sure any of it would have happened.
0: Right, right. I talk to people a lot about that, that same thing right there. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of what, what, when you look back at your time kind of learning from, from Dr. Lubar and working at his research lab, like what were some of the things that stood out mm-hmm. to you the most?
1: Um, well, there's so many things. Um, I would say there were a couple of pivotal um, kind of components. Again, um, the people who were in the lab besides him, just that group of individuals who were there Um, had both direct and indirect influences. um, One of which, um, you know, we're still uh, friends. There was um, an Italian student who had come over named Marco Congedo, who is still um, really pioneering and forging forward in in, uh, like uh, brain-computer interface work. He's based in France. Um, He had ran upon this particular analysis, which is called low-resolution electromagnetic brain tomography, or LORETA. And it was a really lengthy process to do analysis. And he had arranged to go to Switzerland and study with um, and learn about how to do it because he was bugging the developer. He was just, he was a very curious guy and he wanted to use this and was bugging him. And finally, uh, Roberto Pascal Marquis, the, the creator of that said, look, I'm happy to teach you this stuff but you're gonna have to come over here. You're not gonna be bugging me on this email, you know, all day long, every day. So when Marco said he would go, we had become friends. And I was like, I wanna go. So I wrote on his coattails and then together we came back and um, you know, having that knowledge, I was really doing a lot of just the, you know kind of the data lackey kind of work in the lab because I was the youngest least experienced in that group of individuals who were studying at the time. And so uh, we created, um, Basically, a software platform that would do this Loretta analysis in a much more efficient way because it was very time-consuming to do, and then that launched a whole, <clears throat> a whole uh, lots of things. We got, were able to start a company. We started selling the software, it, um, and then that made intros to new people and you know got into different doors and different applications. So that was really a pivotal moment of, you know, having the support from Dr. Lubar to implement that type of newer you know analytics into the lab, but then also the doors that Roberto and Marco opened up and getting to participate alongside them in that research.
0: If you're inter- if you're interested in learning to improve your cognition through the use of nutrition, supplementation, nootropics, exercise, and sleep, go ahead and check out Roscoe'swetsuitneuro.com and book a free 15 minute neuro health coaching consultation to see if neuro coaching is for you. In neuro coaching, we review your current cognitive status and work with you to improve your cognition through the use of the latest research backed neuroscientific tips and tools. <laughs> And what were, what was kind of the beginning of, of you sort of realizing the importance of like understanding the electrical activity of people's brains when it comes to, you know, high performance?
1: It didn't occur to me about performance just yet. So that had been, uh, that foundation was kind of under there, but for me, what the initial draw, which was, you know, like one, it's a non-invasive Relatively inexpensive way for us to see how is the brain contributing to that person's experience. So in the beginning, I was mostly interested in trying to understand both clinical pathologies, but just new differences. I mean, I was you know doing really basic research of you know what what happens, how does the a person react or respond when you know being in a room that's filled you know colored with you know the, their preference of colors or um you know sounds or being in an environment that was more conducive to a particular type of state of learning or agitation those kinds of things so just trying to understand one what does it look like from a brain standpoint if a person has a certain clinical presentation or symptom presentation what does it look like if they're doing a particular task versus a resting state so it was less about performance and more just about how does this thing work and then what was really exciting about it was the capacity of implementing operant conditioning of the EEG or now called neurofeedback to say like if you don't want that set of experiences whether it's clinical or not you can learn to shift it and so that was a really fascinating idea so I think there were a couple of pieces one there was a way for us an individual to purposefully or intentionally control the brain state and our experience that's really exciting because it empowers the individual rather than you know, taking a medicine or being in the hands of somebody else to take care of us in some way. Um, so that was exciting. And then, you know, obviously the cost-effectiveness of an EEG is, you know, in non-invasive nature. It's it's one of the few tools in neuroimaging that you know you can, you know, a, a researcher or even a student researcher can do on a budget. <clears throat> so that was um, that was the, the the initial piece. But then, as we started um, getting exposed to more high-performing individuals, elite athletes, you know, executives, those kinds of individuals, it was like, well, it, it had been pondered. It wasn't like it was a novel idea, but it hadn't been really thoroughly investigated um, when we started, first started exploring that, which was like 2008, 2009. There was, you know, the research was really sparse, almost non-existent, and so it was like, well, if we know that if I can work with an individual who has clinical symptoms and bring them from here to here, what about individuals who are already here? You know, they're healthy, functioning, they maybe have life challenges or maybe even symptoms, but we're really aiming instead of removing symptoms, adding performance, whatever that means in their particular world. It's Like, we don't know what the, the cap on, you know, potential is like, it we, would still unknown. So it's not like we can say, oh, well, you've, you've tapped out, you know, you're at the top of your game, you don't bother we don't know so that was really exciting to start to say all right we know the brain states are different how does that fit for this group of individuals and so then we just sat down a set out on a path of exploring like one are elite performers brains different the answer was yes um, within that population are there nuances or differences so can we start to identify you know people who would be better suited for some you know, either physicians or types of environments than others, the answer was yes. Will they respond to training? Uh, like, can they change their brain, And uh, yes. And then ultimately, do, do those changes impact performance-related outcomes, not just their own subjective experience of their internal environment? And then the answer was yes. So it, just, it opened up a whole new set of qu- same questions we were asking in the clinical world before, but just applied now on the performance side, which all of us to some degree are performers. Um, You know, whether we're being a parent or being a worker or whatever our thing is, we have to perform. And so that really, in my mind, was powerful to broaden the range. So now, you know, make the joke all the time. People say, you know, who's it good for? Like anybody who's got a brain, like literally self-regulation can be a powerful thing for all of us.
0: Right, right. I mean, you think about like if someone was to ask that question of, you know, who should go to the gym, who should work out. Right. You know, it's like, you wouldn't just say, Oh, someone who, who doesn't have any muscles. Like, you know, it could be good for that person to build muscle. It could also be good for yep. a person who's already in good shape to get an even better shape. So exactly. I, I like the same approach when it comes to brain training there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What were some of the main findings when you were examining that question of of the differences of peak performers' brains? Like, what were you finding in the electrical activity of peak performers that differed from a normal population?
1: Yeah, so I think there's probably a few key things that stand out. And it's less like one might expect me to say something like, oh, they had this particular EEG phenomenon that shows up that doesn't show up in healthy individuals or symptomatic individuals. Um, but it's not that. In fact, I would say that if you were to take any individual's, um, you know, EEG and, and you know, we were to analyze it, that information alone wouldn't necessarily differentiate or have us, you know, be able to discriminate. Yes, this person is a high performer. This person has a clinical presentation. This person doesn't. What we see are anomalies in the EEG. But it's about how does an individual manage those anomalies? So in some cases, there might be a finding that in one individual causes no, you know, they're just it's, it's just not a non-event. In other individuals, it might severely cripple them from a symptom presentation. And in another individual, it somehow uh, causes them to be able to excel in a particular way. So the biggest difference in the high performer's um, takeaway is that their brain is unique in the way that they manage the things that they have. So in one person, it might be anxiety, in another individual, it's motivation, drive, determination, perseverance. It's that same internal push that causes one person to experience that as a negative thing and the other person to say, this is who I am they don't perceive it as a negative thing, not because they're special, unique, different, better than, just because they don't have that experience. And instead that's the perseverance of like pushing themselves to new limits and really wanting to refine their craft. So that's the biggest thing is that their brains are very much um, not necessarily more powerful or less powerful in in any particular or specific way, but the, the things that they have, they really use in a unique way. Uh, So that would be one piece. And the other that really stands out is the flexibility for them to switch tasks. Um, So create, I always say like there's basically in my model of performance with regard to to brain training is there's four basic steps. One is to create different brain states. So if I don't have the, if I don't know what it feels like to focus or concentrate, I'm not going to be able to do it. So like I have to know, my brain has to have the capacity to do that thing. Uh, If it's calm or reduce, um, you know, like manage myself under pressure, my brain has to know what to do with that information. And this applies across various different states. So we have to be able to create those brain states. Um, And then from there, we want to volitionally control it, being able to like me decide, okay, right now the stakes are, the pressure is high. I need to kind of be able to dial that down, that internal anticipation or, or whatever, you know, pressure response, dial it down. And then the third piece would be flexibility. Can I shift between high intensity, calm, idle, now re-engage at a lower level Like being, having that real flexibility, that's where elite performers really stand out is that capacity to, instead of having an on and off switch, I often say when they have a dimmer switch, so I can be put in any environment if I were a high performer and dial it up or down to match my environment. And that's the real difference where they excel because they, you know, imagining just the most basic way to think about it is if we have a scale of under arousal on one side and over arousal on the other, lots of times people get stuck in one end or one place. And that's why we tend to experience a clinical presentation as we go, I feel this thing, but it's only a problem at home or it's only a problem at school or it's only a problem at work because there's no flexibility in being able to do that it might ex- help us excel in one environment but be detrimental in another the elite performers have the capacity to kind of move along that continuum to m- make their internal environment match the external environment or adjust and adapt to it so that's the biggest uh, two things
0: and is that flexibility something that we can increase in terms of training both the brains of peak mm-hmm. performers along with just A clinical population?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's one of the, again, when people, um, you know, whether they come into my practice for clinical presentation or sport or performance, whatever that looks like, that is one of the pieces like saying, okay, let's first create the brain state. Let's identify, you know, maybe there is some anomaly that's occurring that's contributing to their experience. Okay. Let's address that. But then let's kind of work both in and out of that state um, the analogy I like to use a lot is you know if I say, if we're just sitting here, let's say, relax your arm. You're like, my arm is relaxed. It's just you know sitting here on this desk and it's not activated. Those muscles aren't activated, it's, it's relaxed. But there's like, almost like a neutral state. If I hold a barbell or tense up my arm for 30 seconds and then I say, relax, it feels drastically different. It really pushes those edges of that continuum. So we'll do that in a session. I'm like, okay, let's do, Maybe they're working on focus as an example or attention. I'm like, okay, let's push. Let's like really intensely do that. So I'm, you know, moving the thresholds so that they're getting feedback when they're in the highest intensity of focus. And I'm like, okay, now shut the feedback off. I want you to completely not do that to shift back to this micro state of recovery, calm, letting all the thought processes go. Because if you think about sport, performance, being a student, taking a math test, you know, in this moment of, In between questions, you know, wherever we are, we need those. I need to engage. I need to back off, recover, rest, recompose, you know, flush all the stuff that was going on before, and then re-enter. That is kind of what we're trying to illustrate. So, so you can absolutely create that just by practicing it. Literally, turn it on. Okay, now turn it off. I'll turn it on. Let's turn it off, and just back and forth.
0: And when it comes to like training the brains of peak performers. What's your approach in terms of working to make sure that you're not kind of minimizing, you know, the, the aspects of their brain function that may be contributing to their, you know, unique abilities or gifts, you know, and instead enhancing those.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And that's, of the questions that athletes usually ask, it's usually, the first one is, you know, is this, does it work? Is it effective And if you say yes? And even if you said maybe, lots of individuals who are high performers are willing to give it a try just to see what happens. But that's the the second most common question is, will this somehow take away my talent or my gift or whatever makes me, has gotten me to this point? And so it's a really critical piece because we're not actually wanting, whatever their brain is currently doing, we're good with it. We, we just accept that that is an okay place to be. And what we want to do is create states that are different that are alternates to that particular state that they're generally showing up with like in that trait characteristic. So we're saying, that's great, let's do that. I'm not trying to change or remove or make more or less of anything while you're in that resting state. I'm ask, actually wanting you to perhaps even push that farther meaning make it more uh, intense but then let's also contrast it against other states. So this is where it really differs from a clinical presentation uh, or a goal for a clinical client is that now we're not saying, you know, how does this, this finding correlate with the symptom and now let's remediate it or make it go away. We're saying, how does this pattern show up in the, in the way of enhancing performance? Let's keep it, let's make it bigger, even if it's deviant. So like the idea of <clears throat> of normal and deviant and all those kinds of things in this world kind of goes out the window. Like it's relevant to have that question and you know, go, how do they compare to you know healthy individuals or a reference population? That's a reasonable question to ask, but it shouldn't be what dictates the intervention. We're in a clinical population that that has more relevance.
0: Right, right. I'm not sure if you're referring to like z-score training specifically, but I mean that you know, when I think of like, oftentimes what we're doing with kind of clinical neurofeedback is like training to the the Z score, kind of a normative database, kind of getting abnormal individuals Mm -hmm. back into, into the normal range. Whereas obviously with peak performance, they already are abnormal in a sense, but in, in a a Mm -hmm. good way. Right.
1: Right. Potentially. That's exactly it. So yeah, whether that's, um, from the decision-making of, you know, making that comparison to a reference population, just saying, okay, you have too much or too little of something, or if it literally means, uh, you know, train from the neurofeedback standpoint uh, of, you know, the feedback being based off of getting it closer to a zero standard deviation value. So it doesn't matter what the metric is that you're actually training. It's the mentality of going in of saying, how do I decide what to train? We're not just addressing the deviant patterns. In fact, we're saying, that deviant pattern might be a contribution to some ill experience that the person's having so if they're over aroused and they've got too much fast frequency activity and then they're you know always experiencing this over arousal I mean that may you might address that and it is deviant but just because it's deviant doesn't mean it's a problem yeah
0: and is it going <laughs> do you think that like having like say a peak performance database is is re- a realistic thing like in the sense of like if we could put together sort of a, a, a peak performance database to train individuals to kind of the, the brain states of peak performers, mm-hmm. or is there too much variation in kind of the brain states of peak performers where that isn't possible?
1: Yeah, so I think I think both are possible, but the it's kind of like a two-tiered thing. So yes, it's I think it's valuable. So when we I was um, working with just at one period. Uh, working in the entrepreneurial space, we were collecting just tons of peak performer data and ended up with you know over 1,300 elite performers. They were either you know Fortune 50, comp- Fortune 100 company executives, or um, you know people who were at the top of their game in you know world class athletes, Olympians, professionals, etc. And so like uh, maybe some also there was some military types of applications in there, but people who were Uh, objectively identified as people who are peak performers uh, or high-performing individuals. And so as a collective group, there was value in being able to take another individual and compare them to that group and say, here's how you compare to other elite performers, but it didn't, um, if we said, okay, here's that mean value of whatever that EEG metric is, taking that individual and making them match that mean, I don't think is a good strategy because What's really important is that every individual will approach a different uh, approach, the same environment in a different way. And so what's what helps you succeed. In a high pressure setting under, you know, like at the highest level may not be the exact same way that I should approach it and making my brain electrically match what you or the collective looks like doesn't make a lot of sense either. Again, we're, we're training to that regression towards the mean and then what? Then we just have a group of similar functioning individuals who are all performing at some, you know, in some way. So, um, so I think there is value in understanding what is a range, how do that, how does that group, um, look, uh, compared to an individual, but then ultimately, I think that's kind of where it stops. It's a it's a good data point, but again, not the thing that would dictate what would be good for any given individual.
0: <clears throat> Got it. Okay. And now, in terms of like, you know, when I introduced you, I, I talked about the, mm-hmm. you know, that you've been kind of, that you've led research partnerships with Red Bull, North America's high mm-hmm. performance center, USA track mm-hmm. and field, US military, you know, out of all of the, when you think about all of the research collaborations that that you've been a part of, are there any specific ones that really stand out to you and stand out to you in your mind?
1: Um, they all have some uniqueness to them. Um, the military types of things were um, a little bit more basic science of like exploratory, can we um, identify certain characteristics that might, um, I, you know, cause us to find an individual to be particularly talented in a particular way or identify early markers of um, you know, needing an intervention or being particularly good for a particular thing. So it was just really exploratory. It was valuable. It's good information. Um, and then with the all of the athlete populations, <clears throat> you know, they all had something. I think the collaboration with Red Bull is probably the one that um, was most influential because there were such a wide variety of individuals. I mean, you had people doing all sorts of a variety of action sport kinds of things, extreme, um, you know, stunts, events, um, and down to even some team play. <clears throat> so I think from a just from a broad spectrum of awareness, that was really, and they also had a really diverse group of individuals who were all collaborating at the same time. So we'd have sports psychology, neuro, um, you know, nutrition, biomechanics, like the whole gamut of individuals. So that was really interesting to be able to see how does this fit within the context of a broader sports science program or a high performance program, which is now kind of the trending phraseology for that, that type of thing. So I think that would probably stand that, that collaboration and it was also the longest collaboration. It wasn't just like, we're gonna go do this project and get this data. We're gonna like really just offer it to athletes, both data collection, let's answer some specific questions, but let's also offer this as a service to our athletes that were um, being sponsored as you know, just a, an awareness, like educational opportunity of seeing how their brain works, but also if they wanted to do training, then they could engage in that. So um, I think, yeah, that, that would probably be the one, there's not a specific finding that stands out from that group outside of how diverse, I think that's probably the takeaway message is, uh, And that helped me answer the question you just asked before this one of, do we want like an, uh, an elite performing, you know, stereotypical kind of, idea that we want to train to and that group clearly demonstrated and taught us the lesson that no that's that's not the way it would work you could pluck any of those guys um from any of their given you know crafts give them the 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 physical skills and body or whatever it takes to be successful but their brains would then succeed in a different way than the person that we you know kind of dropped them in so you just can't make two of the same people uh work in the same way so
0: and then, so you were talking about, as far as the interventions, you, you guys were doing neurofeedback with those Red Bull individuals? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was one of the options they did. They had access to so many different things, but that was one, um, one of the offerings that they had. Some athletes really engaged to a high degree. Some, um, you know, in the high-performing population, and this is true in the business world as well, in the performing arts as much as it is in sports, but it's more clearly um, seen in the sport world. Is there's so many opportunities for things that are both technology and traditional training methods. Like there's always something to be doing. And so they have to be really careful about what's going to be the maximum return on my investment from a time standpoint. Um, and so that was some individuals, you know, had the opportunity or they felt like this was the modality that offered them the most opportunity for improvement. And so they really engaged to a high degree, and in other individuals. Um, engaged to a lesser degree, depending on what else they had going on in their world.
0: And in terms of like, you know, answering that question now, as far as like the different kind of neuromodulation or biofeedback technologies that that do offer kind of the most return on on someone's investment of, of time and money, other mm-hmm. resources, like what what sort of things stand out to you besides just neurofeedback?
1: Uh, in the physiological world, like biofeedback types of things.
0: Yeah. Or like, I don't know if you okay. pay attention to like, like photobiomodulation or a stimulation, uh-huh, uh-huh. any of those other. Yeah.
1: yeah so um, all of those things I think are, um, can be valuable. The, the thing that I always stress, and I think this is kind of foundational and, and I think probably hopefully most all other sports psychologists or other individuals in that performing world would say that the, the easiest low hanging fruit is respiration and heart rate variability training. These are um, things that anybody can do. They, you don't have to do them for a very long time. I mean, doing three to five minutes, let's call it twice a day, can be profoundly impactful. Um, the equipment is, you know, a hundred-ish dollars, give or take, uh, depending on how fancy or elaborate you want the, the equipment to be. Uh, can be, can travel with it. You can do all sorts of things. So that, I think, is really low-hanging fruit because it's so low on the investment side time and money. Um, The other things that the stimulation techniques then become appealing because most of the investment is on the um, buying the device side of the house where you can be you know answering emails or you know studying playbooks or doing other watching tv even like having downtime while doing a neurostimulation type of a a procedure. So that's pretty low-hanging fruit also on the time investment which is the most valuable commodity in those populations. So I think that has some real value. The challenge with um, with the stimulation technologies is that they are are effective, they do provide benefit, but there is some degree of ongoing, um, I'll call it maintenance for lack of a better expression, but there's ongoing use in order to keep the benefits at the highest level. And and there's some situations where that that definitely matters. So if I'm going through a particular challenge and I use a stimulation technique to help me figure it out, I may not need as much as if I have an ongoing more chronic kind of a situation. So there's there's nuances in there, but generally speaking, it is a recurring process. But again, the investment on the time is lower just because I can do other things at the same time. Um, The most powerful, obviously, are the operant conditioning types of things, the biofeedback and neurofeedback. Um, even photobiomodulation, those are that's also fits in that same category of there is a, a learned response that's happening along with the stimulation response in some of the some of the devices. So I, I would say generally, easiest low-hanging fruit are the very simple biofeedback respiration, heart rate variability. Then the stimulation techniques have um, you know some value with more investment. and then the the biggest investment is the one that has the biggest return, which is the operant conditioning. Uh, modalities
0: and you found that like the the results from say doing neurofeedback biofeedback you found to be like more kind of enduring or long-lasting than say the neurostimulation
1: right exactly so um yeah well if, if you get to a certain threshold so like for me i say you know if, if somebody wants to invest five sessions um of time together it can be good for educational purposes of them saying, "Oh, I thought that's what focus felt like, but I can see now how my brain is contributing to that experience." Or even doing an evaluation in a single, um, a single meeting can be really um, profoundly impactful in understanding how that person's brain contributes to their experience. So it takes a lot of the "I'm crazy" or I, um, you know, the, all the, the squishy part of of psychology. It, it eliminates that for a lot of people. They go, "Oh, well, that's just how my brain works." So let me figure out other strategies to to do that thing without, you know, to to fit my brain. So even from just an educational standpoint, that's great. But if they want to do the training and the training to make a significant change, then for me in in neuro specifically, it's like, let's get to 20 sessions. Those first, um, you know, handful of sessions are just about observation. You're figuring it out. The next handful of sessions are... Really learning and gaining some control, and then when we get to like around session twelve-ish, individuals generally say, you know, I feel like I'm controlling the feedback. Like I can identify. They may not be able to have the the right words or be really articulate about it, but they definitely feel in control of manipulating the system and are starting to see benefits in concrete external ways. Uh, but then we need to like reinforce that. I mean, it's the same as you know we're learning a language or an instrument or anything else like. Once you learn to play a song on your guitar, if you put it away and you don't practice it enough, then it it fades. And so like all other things that we learn, there is kind of a minimum. And for me, that number is around 20-ish uh, sessions of, of the training. And then we see some long-lasting effects.
0: And in terms of like your your approach to training, like, you know, I've, I've interviewed uh, lots, plenty of, of neurofeedback experts on the podcast. And You know, everyone has kind of a different approach. There's so many different Mm -hmm. systems, methods of of training out there. And I feel like a lot of kind of division, you know, within the field of of one, one group saying this training is the right thing to do. Another group kind of refuting that what, what is your approach when it comes to neurofeedback training?
1: Um, So I think that all of those approaches have value it's about knowing when that approach has the most value for the particular client. And so um, just like if we were to use, you know, other mental health types of things, you wouldn't say that, you know, um, any given theory or modality, let's use cognitive behavior therapy as an example. That's a very popular one. Lots of people know that. It may be the right answer for some individual's presentation. It's going to be not the best choice for somebody else. It doesn't mean it's ineffective. It just means it's not the best choice for this situation. So I think having an awareness of, what are all the range of options? Uh, and then let me apply the, the metric, which best correlates with the presentation or the goal that I'm trying to achieve in the client. So that, that would be the first piece. So I think a lot of the division is um, superficial or even artificial. It's, you know, like it's, it's, it's what I know and it works and therefore that's the one that I believe in and the others maybe not. So, um, so I think that's, that's a trap that we, we fall into that we shouldn't. But then um, in my personal philosophy is that the most simple feedback, the most simple way that the individual can learn is gonna be one, the fastest way to learn but also the longest lasting And what I mean specifically is, um, you know, the technology now uh, and meaning software and analytics and you can do all sorts of things. You know, I can I can make a a really complicated algorithm asking 30 to 32 different electrodes attached to my scalp to get reinforced when they do, you know, an infinite number of possibilities of different things. challenge with that the brain will learn so i mean not that anybody would make one that complicated but let's just say even they were using you know lots of electrode sites and asking different sites to do different things um, in the eg metrics the brain would learn what to do and it can be effective but the client doesn't have the same level of insight as to what they did to get there as they do when they have used a more simple approach from my experience anyway, and that's particularly in performance applications. So really important for me uh, and the clients that I work with is that they don't just show up and we do something, they participate and then they feel better or they perform better. Like that's that's great. I mean, that, there's it's hard to argue with that being an outcome, but better is that they come in, they know what they did, in order to create that success. So now when they're you know, in the bottom of the ninth of the world series or the fourth quarter and inches uh, to go, they can tap into it. So it's less about let's just teach your brain to do something that you have lack of no awareness of. Let's teach you how to generate that thing. And then when you're really, the stakes are high, you say, okay, when I was doing that thing, and I'll, I'll use an example, there was a boxer that we worked with, a heavyweight champion, and he, he, he's just a giant guy, and he would usually, uh, a match would end very early, uh, and not a high number of rounds, so he, there was a situation, his opponent got sick, but it was already uh, set up, and so they had another boxer come in, it was somebody that he had sparred with before as a training partner, and so... They knew each other, and this went on for a, so the, mat, around went, the rounds were many, and the match went on for a long time. And so, at one point, he reported back that, you know, I can't remember the, the specifics, you know, it was the seventh or eighth round or whatever, but they're going at it. And he's thinking to himself, just drive that car, drive the car, drive the car. He was literally trying to create the same internal environment that had been successful for him in the neurofeedback session in that boxing match in that moment because he knew. Whatever he was doing, we had been working on endurance from an attention standpoint and he was fatigued. He was getting tired. And so he was really tapping into what was successful for him in those sessions. If we just hooked him up and said, you know, make the screen play or whatever the feedback was, but it was a really complicated algorithm. He wouldn't have had that insight into how do I tap into it? So my approach is what's the most simple way we can get to them understanding what they're doing so that they can really generalize and take that learning out of the office and into the field.
0: Right. I was, I was just going to say that exact same thing, being able to transfer what they're learning kind of Mm -hmm. while doing neurofeedback and then actually apply that into the kind of real world applications. Exactly. Now, how about when it comes to like, you know, sort of lifestyle interventions or just, you know, things when it comes to you know, what people, how much people are sleeping or eating, exercising, like how how have you found that impact both, I guess, the EEG, the electrical activity of people's brains, along with kind of just high performance?
1: Right, so it, it's critical to both. Um, it's less specific, so I can't say that if you are malnourished, you're going to have, the EEG will respond in this very specific way. Um, it will be different. Uh, we see that when people have um, either, you know, they're hypoglycemic or they're, they've taken, let's say, you know, too much of an energy drink or whatever, like the, our brain does, the, there is an electrical reaction to the things that we put into our body. Although that might be either non-specific or more subtle than we would notice traditionally, uh, you know, like I won't know if you had, you know, fast food or if you had really great, uh, organic homegrown vegetables last night. It's not going to change your brainwave over a period of time. There of course would be implications. Um, in a non specific way. But all of those things, particularly sleep and nutrition, I mean, there's a huge, you know, a whole, you could do a whole set of series of interviews with people on gut brain, uh, you know, connection and how that works, which is not my domain expertise. So I won't pretend to get into it, but there's a massive uh, way in which what we put into our body affects that. But then sleep is critical. That's one of the, um, it was always whenever we're talking to a high performing group of individuals. That's one of their primary uh, interests. How is this going to impact my sleep? Will it make me sleep better? Uh, almost sometimes they're more concerned about that than will I score more points or get more deals or whatever their, their thing is. Um, and so all of those things, nutrition, sleep habits, um, exercise routines, everything that you think about from like being a healthy individual contributes to increased performance. And so it's it's really straightforward If we can you know, use any lots of different metaphors for it. But if we don't have a properly tuned body or a housing for our brain and the appropriate fuel for it uh, and that can include the environmental context and that doesn't just mean like am i physically fit and am i eating right and all those kinds of things but do i have the right uh, balance in my life work life balance do i have recreation do i have a support system you know friends family all those kinds of things the emotional support goes into that that mix too Um, And so we're ultimately, if we want to have the maximum performance. We should be looking at all of those things. They're all critical. It's not that one is more or less important than another. And I think that's where some of the challenges become, as I mentioned before, is like we have a finite amount of time and, you know, like any one of us could spend six hours a day easily just doing self-care, you know, love to go to a yoga class and then go work out and then do some sleep and recreate, and read something entertaining, but stimulating and like, it, we just don't have that chance. And then when you factor in what an athlete's doing for their physical conditioning, which tends to take the priority because that's what we can see. And that's a disadvantage for some folks is like we need to we need to look at all of those things to answer your questions. They're all critical, um, but there's not a magic recipe, and even that recipe will vary both the ingredients and how much for each individual. So you really have to work with a collaborative team to say what fits for this person and the goals that they have.
0: Got it well dr Sherlin, we're we're coming up onto the end of the show. really have enjoyed this fascinating discussion with you. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you in terms of, uh, you know, kind of looking to the future of kind of peak performance training, brain training, you know, what, what excites you the most or where do you sort of see this going?
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, um, for the past few weeks, I've, I've got to engage with several people and in, like interviews and things like that. And so that's always the last question. It's always probably one of the harder questions because, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said that i think neurofeedback will and biofeedback just like the awareness of using these um technologies is going to like open up everything it's going to be wide open everybody's going to be excited it's the final frontier of performance you know all those kinds of things that didn't happen in those 10 years and then i was like okay well the next 10 years it'll be like breaking down the barriers of technology and like access to equipment and services and things like that and there's more providers and there's more wearables and all sorts of you know cool toys and, and things that do really good work. And that hasn't shifted it drastically. So to be fair, I think that it comes down to a couple of things. One, us being really, us, uh, I mean providers, people who have the awareness and knowledge of these, uh, these tools um, is to really advocate the proper positioning of the tool in the, in the overall plan and picture there's definitely opportunities for more research. So we can be very specific on in this client who has this type of presentation, doing X, whatever X equals for training is gonna yield some particular outcome. And plus or minus a little bit, we can't be, you know, guarantees of course, but then the challenge right now is we can't, the clients can't make as good decision about what's my investment and what's that return going to look like. And so, that causes a little bit of challenge for some folks to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in, especially when they are on limited things. Technology is expanding and growing and that's great, but the barriers sometimes are still too high to get in, whether it's cost or ease of use or you know, where it's available, how it's available, traveling, all that kind of stuff. So I think all of the things that we have been doing as a field, technology, uh, research, awareness, education, those things, but more. We're going to have to really double down on those things and get in front of people um, so that they can find the the benefits. And unfortunately, if we think about healthy people and clinical populations, sometimes we don't do things until it hurts. So, you know, like we all know that spending 30 minutes to an hour walking, running, cardiovascular is going to be good for us in the long term. We all know that eating good nutrition is going to be long-term good for our health. We'll perform better, but we don't always do it. We wait until I'm not performing well or something hurts. And then we start to address it. And so we've got to really shift. I think the bigger thing in general is that we shift our mindset about how do we take care of ourselves to perform better before we have problems.
0: Awesome. Well, Dr. Dr. Sterling, if... People want to find out uh, more about your clinical practice or research or connect with you. Where, uh, where would you direct them to?
1: Yeah, easiest place is to go to my website, which is just drsherlin.com, and, uh, and my email is leslie at lesley@drsherlin.com. So they can reach out in those ways. Of course, I've got the social media stuff, but in my uh, my world, I try to I try to limit those things and uh, connect with people in real life. So, but there's some some things out there in that in that domain too.
0: I hear you. Awesome. Well, I will link those in the show notes. And uh, for those listeners who enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And also you can go ahead and listen to the podcast on whatever audio platform you listen to podcasts on, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the others, we are on them all. Dr. Sherlin, I wanted to again, really thank you for coming on the show today to share all of your knowledge and expertise.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Absolutely.